The wonderful Emmy Kegler, a former guest on this podcast, once described her project as taking the words that have been used as swords and turning them into plowshares. My guest today collated an edited volume which asked the questions, is it possible for the exploited and their allies to reclaim the Bible from the dominant powers? Essentially taking Kegler's project into a decolonial context. And so he got together over 60 contributors, authors, theologians, pastors, and artists from settler colonial context to ask these questions of various biblical texts. The work is Unsettling the Word, Biblical Experiments in Decolonization, out now through Orbis Books. And my guest is its editor, Steve Heinrichs. Steve is the Director of Indigenous Settler Relations for the Mennonite Church in Canada. Please welcome him to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Well, Steve Heinrichs, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks, Liam. No worries. So we're talking about a book you've edited together called Unsettling the Word, Biblical Experiments in Decolonization, which is out through Orbis Books currently. Just give us a little bit of a, you know, the, the elevator pitch for the book. Uh, and, uh, and I guess maybe even and then beyond that, what were your hopes when you decided to put something like this together? Okay, this isn't going to be your classic 30-second elevator pitch, but (laughs) the dream behind this work was to communicate um, how the biblical story has incredible subversive memories that can, you know, uh, be used in reconciliation practice and conversation. Specifically, I'm thinking the relationship between settler and Indigenous peoples. The Bible has been used as a tool to cause so much harm in many Indigenous contexts, has been wielded as a weapon. How do we wield the Bible in restorative ways? And also, as part of that practice, how do we, what do we have to deconstruct within the Bible in order to disarm it mm-hmm. um, so that it's not an ongoing tool in the settler colonial arsenal? Mm. No, I think that's really good. And that, that's a vital, vital work. So I guess, how did you come to this place? How did you come to the point where you realized that the Bible had been used in this way, that it could be used in another way? Uh, what was kind of, I guess, your introduction to the idea that the word needed unsettling or, or that the Bible needed decolonizing, Christianity needed decolonizing, and then, I guess, eventually how that leads to putting the book together? Yeah, I could probably uh, approach that question in a couple of different angles. So I'll, I'll share um, two short stories. Hopefully they're short. One would be um, many years ago, I worked with Christian peacemaker teams. I still work with CPT, uh, but years ago it was in Palestine where in that context in the occupied West Bank territory, you get to see the, the machinations of settler colonialism firsthand. And settler colonialism in that context is fueled pretty explicitly by certain biblical visions at play. And there I was, a pretty young evangelical Christian going into a conflict zone, wanting to do nonviolent resistance work to um, violent oppression, and yet finding that the people who, on the other side of this conversation and practice, were also yielding the Bible for their aims. And so in that space, I had to do a lot of wrestling with 
you know, Zionist approaches to the Bible, um, pretty blatant narratives in the the Hebrew scriptures, but also um, certain uh, texts within the, in the New Testament heritage as well that that can be used in expropriative uh, fashion. So there, you know, and, and especially as someone who's coming into that context, not simply because I, um, I wanted to do piecework born out of my own Mennonite tradition, but because expressly uh, encouraged by this love of text, you know, believing that uh, God has spoken in surprising and wonderful ways through this text and is calling the world to uh, lay down our weapons and, and to find good ways of living together. So that was one experience. That was early 2000s being in Palestine. More recently, between 2009 and 2015, here in Canada, we've experienced the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Uh, around the world, many TRCs have, have um, been brought to bear, East Timor, South Africa. Uh, we know of the, the, the good work that's happened through those TRCs. In Canada, we heard uh, the witness of tens of thousands of um, peoples connected to the residential school legacy. You know, on a, a genocidal experiment carried out by both state and church where more than 150,000 children were taken from their indigenous nations and communities, often in the name of Jesus, um, to assimilate them into uh, a white Christian colonial world. And so as many churches listen to the witness of uh, indigenous peoples who have been battered by well-intentioned Christians. Uh, we had to come with, uh, you know, we were deeply challenged within our own very hearts and souls and communities to say, how do we, uh, how do we wrestle with this legacy that continues today in many ways? In 2015, when that Truth and Reconciliation Commission ended, it put out 94 calls to action. And amongst those calls to action, there were two that no doubt would resonate with Aboriginal Australia and many settlers of conscience in Australia as well. And those two were a repudiation of the doctrine of discovery and legal concepts used to justify um, European sovereignty over Indigenous lands and peoples, including terra nullius, which is, you know, writ large in Australia. The other one was a call to churches to respect Indigenous spiritualities in their own right. What does that mean for churches that historically have been supremacist in our uh, sharing of Jesus in very coercive fashion often, but also even when it's been more benevolent, it's still been in supremacist fashion. And it's had incredible repercussions not only for Indigenous peoples, but for the lands themselves and the way we wielded our Christianity. So out of that TRC, there was a lot of work that churches were tasked with. And one of them was a reimagining of our own very traditions so that it could not only be, and I've used this language a few times in this conversation, but disarmed, but it also, can, how can it be re-equipped with um, you know, plowshares can even be a dangerous analogy, but um, in ways that are healing 
and just and uh, loving and kind. So that was, you know, and, and we knew that this work is not new work, that many throughout the millennia and recent history have done that uh, reimagining and reconstructive work themselves. And uh, so draw, drawing off, I reference in Unsettling the Work, uh, the word, the work of um, W.E.B. Du Bois and James Cone, so Black liberative traditions and even white Christian liberative traditions like Clarence Jordan, who, uh, who wrote the Cotton Patch Gospels and tried to do something with the scriptures so that it could bring about a reconciliation between the races. Well, we're trying to do that here in this context where it's, it's not only reconciliation uh, between Indigenous and settler peoples, but, but the land as well. Thank you for that. And I think what comes through both in the stories that you have in the book and the stories that you're telling there are, you know, that this, this work of decolonizing, this work of unsettling is not just this thing that people are doing to be provocative. It's not just this thing you're doing as kind of an abstract thought experiment. And it has these on the ground implications on the way we live together and the way we live on the land together. Um, You know, it's a very grounded and an immediate kind of Mm. experiment um, which I think is important because I think often sometimes people like, you know, who, who maybe haven't been as embedded in these communities um, look at these books and think, oh, you're just trying to take my loved, long-loved texts and make them uh, and make me feel bad about them or make them mean what they, I didn't think they meant or, or that. And I guess, you know, those are, those are real concerns that people have and, and it can be a real shock to the system because, you know, especially people held these texts dear for a long time for for various reasons. I guess how do you begin to think about approaching this work, Um, particularly maybe if you're like a a minister picking up this book and, you know, you you find that one of the reflections is on the reading uh, in the lectionary or what have you and you go, oh, great, I might try to to bring it in. Uh, What's been your experience or or what would your um, advice be of starting this work in a community that can be uh, rather diverse uh, put it yeah. theologically. That's a that's a great question, and that's a deep concern that I carry too. Like I am someone who I have my Bible here on my work desk mm. because it's something that I do try to intentionally open every day, and this is a, a book that I treasure and love. And so, in no way um, did I and many of the other people who came to this um, uh, this project of unsettling the word want to do it in the provocative sense of, um, you know, uh, uh, provoking or, or, you know, trying to, trying to do what Christians in many ways have done to indigenous peoples for so long in these lands. And that is dehumanize their beloved traditions and cast aspersions on it. But we're trying to say, um, no tradition is static. There are beautiful things to be found in all these um, ancient traditions. How do we honor what is good, but also redirect that which our elders have passed on to us that hasn't been helpful. So I think even though many of the readings, I think, can be a shock to the system because they'll be pushing at it in much different directions than um, the interpretations that we've you know, hence received. Um, and they might be unmasking directions that the text we think are 
blatantly running in that are are not helpful, that are quite harmful, and that we actually have to say there are shadow sides to the scripture. And that's a hard thing to do, especially if you have a very, um, if you have certain notions of the inspiration of, of the text. Um, so I think pastoral care is required in these conversations. And ultimately, like we need to, for reconciliation to work, there's, it's got to be, uh, it's got to be wrapped and infused with love. And so I wouldn't necessarily recommend this text for people who are fairly new to this conversation. I think there, it, there could be too much unlearning that's being asked of them that it could be, you could be pushed into that zone of radical discomfort that leads even to some paralysis. So it wouldn't be helpful. So it might not be the first book on my shelf that I pass to someone who's new to the decolonizing conversation. It might be number three or four. Um, but I think they are critical conversations and we're trying to be, we're trying to be incredibly honest. I should say like, so there's more than 50 people that contributed to this conversation. And if you sat all of us in the room together, we're not all going to be agreeing with the, the slants that we took on these texts or the way we reimagined them or the kind of commentary that we offered up in response. I think generally what we all are agreeing to is that in order for genuine moves, reparative moves to be made in these relationships, we have to be um, radically honest with one another and that is an act of love in itself if we can hold that kind of transparent, courageous conversation with one another. So in all the works I've had, you know, I've been really lucky in my, in my work over the years to, to be an editor, I'm, to bring these kind of conversations together where you have Indigenous and settler um, in the circle. And I intentionally bring people into those circles that I know are coming from radically disparate vantage points because I don't think it's super helpful if we just get the crowd that's cheering each other on into the same circle. That's part of the problem is that the church is, I think the church is at its best when it's willing to do deep listening to those who, who hold views that are going to unsettle and shake us and, and provoke conversations that encourage us to do critical discernment. We, it might not, we might not go where that person is inviting us to, but likely we'll, even if we're reinforced in some of the views that we currently hold, that, that can be a really good thing. We can go deeper into cherished values and, and, and convictions that we have. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. And so you mentioned how there's 60-plus um, uh, you know, accounts in this book, and so some are like short poems, some are kind of dialogues or like skits, not yeah. in a, in a, in a derogatory sense. Um, some are essays and commentaries. There's visual art as well. Um, yeah, there's a click to a page of some visual art uh, that comes from uh, Jonathan Dyke. Uh, not even speaking of the content, just looking at the variety of form that, 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 that the book holds, do you see that itself as part of this, this unsettling? This, this decolonizing, that, that, you know, it's not just um, essay after essay after essay, that the, the very nature of, of these different forms um, helps with this 
is part of the breaking opening, the breaking open. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I bet you um, my friend Jonathan Dick, who did the artwork, would um, be much more intentional in saying uh, the mediums that we chose in this project were for that very nature. I think I was probably holding a more strategic purpose and just say with um, like there is so much great decolonizing theory that's out there, but it just doesn't get down to um, everyday folks who might not have the luxury or privilege that some of us do to wade through some of this thick um, theory. So how do we, how do we popularize it? And I think that's some of the gift of um, at least parts of uh, the biblical narrative and, um, and, and I'll say like indigenous storytelling, it's like it is at the center of many indigenous epistemologies. And I think that's super helpful to, to move these conversations further is that we need, we need a, many more um, mediums to, by which to communicate. And we also need to communicate in ways that people can actually receive. Because I think it goes back to the question about how do some folks who are newer to this conversation and who treasure this text actually get into some of these difficult conversations? Well, it needs to be somewhat approachable. So the content in Unsettling the Word might be at you know, level two or level three, but I think it's certainly, um, it's not overwhelming in that it's coming in pretty small portions by which you can just read something in the morning and you can set it down and you can, you can come back to it the next day or a week later if it's really ticked you off. Or I should say conversely, I think there's a lot of beautiful stuff in there that will get people who love uh, the Christian tradition actually all the more excited because it's saying, I never knew there were such deeply reparative elements that connect so um, profoundly to in what is centered in indigenous communities and the and the the kind of calls for healing that we're hearing from Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples worldwide. So there's a lot of hidden stuff that I think that we're trying to bring out in mm. these short poems or artwork and uh, short narratives. Yeah, I think hey, you're totally right. Like, it's such a good way to be able to think about reading the book is like almost like in this kind of, you could read it just as this kind of daily devotional or, or every few day devotional where you read the, it's usually maybe a psalm or a short reading, you know, and then read the accompanying piece and, and reflect. I mean, I, I was flicking through when I first got it just to see some of the texts that were there. And I was really excited when I saw that Psalm 137 uh, mm-hmm. was, was, was addressed because I'm like, that's a psalm that I think has such power, but it's so often... Uh, maligned or, or dismissed really quickly um, without kind of the attention to what it means to be you know, an oppressed, disenfranchised, exiled people being taunted yeah. by your oppressors, you know, like, and, and so it's um, it's a poem written by uh, Rory Hockbots. Uh, and it's, it's, I think if you were ever wondering about why the lectionary is wrong to drop off the last two verses of yeah. that um, psalm, this is, this poem, you know, hits you in the gut and, and will really reorient the thinking that's obviously one example there's there's plenty throughout but it's, it's definitely yeah it gives you a different way in and will hopefully even if it is that kind of thing where you go oh wow okay i better and you might have to come back to it a couple of times um will really help you as you try to open up some text in a different way yeah i think that's a great 
I love that psalm. I love I love the man who wrote that. Loli Holquats is he's a Mohawk elder. He's just he's a profound embodiment of someone who's worked and lived for reconciliation and, and reconciliation with the land for for decades. Um, and what that psalm highlights is I think the the call of the best parts of our biblical tradition and what unsettling the word is trying to do is saying, you know, in the words of James Cone, you need to try to read the scripture from the vantage of the bottom. Mm. And then when you read it from the bottom and the marginal, it's a marginal and afflicted or at the center of how you try to read, then all will be included. If they're on the fringe, they're necessarily going to be excluded from it while the powerful retain their position. Mm what we did with some of the other texts is say, okay, just read it blatantly from the vantage of the top and the powerful. Mm. And then you expose the text for at times, I think maybe not how it was originally intended, maybe sometimes, Mm. but how it's been used throughout Christian history. So like we think of the obvious examples of um, uh, the conquest of Canaan, and the Deuteronomy injunctions to like, you know, really commit ethnic cleansing against all these uh, foreign peoples, not the indigenous inhabitants of the land, but they're seen as they're pictured as people that don't have a rightful place in this promised territory. You know, that text is exposed for how it's been leveraged, but even other texts like Colossians, where it says, you know, in this image of, that our life is united in Christ and that all things have, have, have kind of passed in, in, our, in our former life. It's like, what does that mean for indigenous peoples in an in identity when white church has said pretty much, you got to give up, you got to give up your native identity and practices in order to be part of this tradition. It's been devastating. So yeah, I've said the two kind of thrusts that we had in the text, Van- reading it from the vantage of the bottom, exposing it from the vantage of the top. Yeah, that's really important. That comes through, and that's yeah, it's, it's a really valuable resource. But even if yeah, either, as you say, either using in that kind of personal setting of, of exploring, or if you're uh, somebody who preaches or, or you know looks at text in Bible studies, if you've got a text that's covered, or you can even choose texts deliberately that are in here, yeah, yeah. Um, to explore that. So as you were getting, you know, all these emails in with everyone sending in their pieces, I'm sure everyone was, you know, well and truly on time, uh, as, <laughs> as they always are where people are editing volumes. Um, were there any kind of trends or things that just started to emerge? You just read one after the other. Were there things that kind of kept popping up or was it more like more disparate than that? I don't know if it's, if, if it's necessarily a trend that, kept on coming up. I think it is writ large. I think it is throughout the text. Um, But I am continually surprised how material the concerns are in the biblical narratives that, you know, to state the obvious, you can't, you can't separate the spiritual and the political and those are necessarily connected to land and how, you know, the gift of, um, so many of the indigenous voices that we get to experience here in, in these lands, some call Canada is a continual persistent call that, that um, any healing that we're going to experience is fundamentally connected to our right relationship with land. 
And for me, it's just deeply encouraging and unsettling to see that in many ways, that's true of the Bible. Like that our relationship, like, you know, that old saying, it says, uh, says um, let me listen to uh, someone's prayer and I can tell you about their relationship with God. Like, it's also true to say, let me see how someone walks in relationship to creation the rest of creation, and I know their relationship with creator. Like that is actually a pretty, I was going to say dominant, I won't use that. It's a pretty consistent call from the text, from the biblical tradition. And I love that. And I guess in this time of deep ecological crisis and concern, um, where poor peoples and indigenous peoples are at the brunt of, like face the, the deepest wounds of uh, the suffering that we're experiencing in our climate crisis. I just feel like that's something more of us need to press into the ch- as church people and try to practice some of these, um, I guess I, w- I would frame them as Jubilee moves. Like I, that's the tradition that, that jumps out at me. It's like, it's not named always as Jubilee, but that, uh, coming back to the land and, and finding a better way with each other on, on, on this land that has agency uh, is something that we need to really recover. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. So sometimes I put people who I'm interviewing who've edited books on the spot and ask them for their favorite piece that came in, but I won't do that. Instead uh, instead I'll ask, was there one that you read where you're like, Oh, this needs to be a whole book. Like, um, like a, a reflection or an approach or something that, that came in where you're like, this is the thing that like is either a bit newer or not even newer is the right word, but you, ha- you know, hadn't come across as much or hasn't been, you haven't seen get longer treatments. And you're like, I really like to see this explored either by the same author throughout or a, 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 have its own edited volume just on this. Uh, that's a great idea. idea. That's a great question. Um, so uh, nothing immediately comes to mind as to a piece that kind of fits in that zone. But there was, there were a few pieces that struck me as something that this is, this is an edge for us to really work at. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure many others have done much along these lines. But I really do think we need um, a more hope-filled imagination as to what could be in order to live more faithfully in the present. So one of, one of my favorite pieces is I think it's the last piece. Apart from Sylvia McAdam, who's an amazing Cree woman and leader, she's one of the founders of the I Don't Know More movement that is still going here in Canada. This this is Black Friday uh, tomorrow, and Mm -hmm. I Don't Know More are doing round dances in shopping malls to protest the consumerism, which is devouring creation. so apart from Sylvia's afterward, which I'm, you know, I lift up and I say that's where a bulk of attention should be focused, mm. um, because it, it it basically says to the Christian community, it's like um, we're we're pretty good at having these kind of conversations. What we need is more people to actually mobilize and strategize in how to enact some of these wild prophetic imaginations that mm. are in keeping with. Indigenous priorities and knowledges. So my favorite piece is 
the Revelation 21 piece that uh, Dan Eptison uh, crafts on a new creation. And what I love about that piece, and I've, I've shared it in a, in a number of congregational contexts, probably because, yes, it's one of the safer ones. If I shared uh, some of the more dangerous pieces, you could get run out of the pulpit pretty quick. Um, but that piece, what I like about it is that I think in order for us to, um, to really work at this stuff on the ground, we, ha- we have to be infused with a resurrection hope within our within our our bodies and souls and minds and our collective action that we have and I, I this last year and a half I've been reading um, through the sermons of Oscar Romero the the martyred now saint um, the former archbishop of um, in El Salvador and reading through his homilies which are in like they're super long homilies they're like often 45 minutes long and or an hour and a half his last ones that he was preaching but they include like reflections on the disappeared the tortured the kidnapped the corruption in the government like they are so grounded in the in the oppressive reality of El Salvador in that context and yet what you come away from those sermons with is one courageous denunciation of the idols of death, but even more so, incredible hope-filled um, imagination and, and true belief in, in that God is at work here. Don't, like, don't let off. Like, a new creation is coming to being. These are the, the labor, these are the groans of creation at, at work here. And I just find that, like, I don't know what that's like. Um, to have that kind of radical um, trust and, and I would say, disciplined imagination to be able to see what he's seeing. And that's what I long for more, is I think, I think we're pretty thin often in our settler imaginaries as to the new world that God longs to bring and will bring about. And if... That's not escapist to like run in those directions. It can actually make us more radical in the present and to to actually live the cruciform lives that we're being called to. Like if we, I love the saying of Dan Berrigan, the the Catholic um, prophet who passed away a couple years ago, but he said, I want to taste resurrection in my bones. That's what we need is the ability to, to imagine such in order to practice it here in these, because I feel like the the calls that we have from indigenous peoples, they seem utopic often. How do we do a major reparation of land in Australia, in Canada? Uh, you know, I grew up singing um, Beds Are Burning, uh, Midnight Oil, and like the payback, uh, pay the rent campaign, all that stuff infusing my imagination. But I tell you, you have to have a risky, dangerous imagination to believe that some of that can be actually brought to bear. Mm. And then if you have such imagination, I think you'll also be pretty good at um, strategizing and uh, organizing 
following the lead of indigenous peoples around these kind of things. I think that's why we struggle with it is because we're not actually infused enough with such wild stories. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. That's really profound, but I think so important, as you say. And I think particularly, you know, some of the churches we're wrestling with is where more and more as we see decline all around us and loss of influence all around us, we're doing more and more into kind of a fear and to, um, yeah. you know, keeping the arms in and the hands up kind of thing. And, um, yeah, that's that's really powerful and, and I think that's very helpful. As we come toward a close, I wanted to ask, so you're, you're, I want to talk a little bit about your role. You're the Director of Indigenous Settler Relations for the Mennonite Church in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, there's probably a lot of people listening to this from various stripes of Christian denominations and that. I don't know how many would have a role such as this in their denominational office. Uh, there might be certain similar ones potentially around the place. But I was wondering, just talk to us a little bit about what it is a Director of Indigenous Settler Relations does and how your time in this role, any wisdom you'd like to share with other denominations out there about the way they might want to organise their ecclesial structures around this kind of uh, an area. Dude, you have amazing questions. This is, this is <laughs> a lot of fun for me to engage as well. Um, so I've been doing my work for eight years. I moved from the west coast of, of Canada to uh, Winnipeg, which is at the, it's at the center of Turtle Island, the center of North America, to take on this role with Mennonite Church Canada. And when I came in in 2010-11, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was already at work here in Canada. So I was really fortunate to be able to step into this role, which historically has 40 years precedent within my community. So people have been doing this work since the 60s. And uh, the the gift for me was coming into a time where I actually really didn't need to, uh, apart from continuing on some of the good work that my predecessors had, it was really stepping into the work that the TRC was calling Mm -hmm. us churches to engage. And the TRC did such an incredible job through their... um, kind of mass education mobilization efforts to bring churches on board with it, that it really didn't take a lot of persuasion to invite our congregations and churches to say, one, what we're being asked to do is just listen deeply. Listen so much that um, our hearts are moved. And then when we're moved from that profound place, then we'll have a greater sense of what we're called to do. By the time we had done a bunch of our listening work, and I have to give credit to my my Mennonite community alongside the ecumenical community in Canada, I have to say, like came out in droves to the TRC. Yes, it was mainly, I would say, the mainline churches. So these historic churches had had relationships institutionally to residential schools who felt the clear um, historical connects to this story came out on mass, but there was also, there was a lot of surprising engagement from evangelical pockets as well, which was deeply encouraging. So a lot of us just sat and listened intently and tried to bring as many uh, sisters and brothers from our congregations to come out and be present and do that. By the time the TRC finished, it came out with not only these six volumes of reflection on the the testimony of survivors of the schools 
and where we need to go, but it had those concrete 94 calls to action. And about six of them are directed at the church. So we were given six go-to priorities. And that's been, that's been fundamentally the, the foundation of the work that I've been asked to do by my church as well. Like they've given us um, the blessing to go forward and say, respond to these. And, and in brief, what they are is, well, I should say the, the three that are at the core of it are, we need to figure out how to respect the minimum standards of relational respect between Indigenous and settler peoples that are outlined in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That was that was the thing that was lifted up most by the TRC throughout its calls to action. Everyone needs to figure out how to adopt and comply the UN Declaration. And then the other things have to do with the church's historical and present legacy of, um, of how our faith tradition has caused spiritual violence and, um, and has had an impact on our relationship with the land, so the doctrine of discovery. That is more than enough work for our churches to do right now. And I don't want to, like, I think we've done, and I'm just going to say we as in the ecumenical community, broadly speaking, has been pretty, um, pretty solid in its response, I think, as far as the different sectors of, of the larger Canadian society goes. I think the church has been fairly good at responding. We have a lot more work to do, but. Uh, and I wouldn't want to lift up the Mennonite community in comparison to any others. I think we're just one in the circle that's trying to learn from each other and say, where do we go? I would say the biggest challenge for us would be in call to action number 48. And there's a really interesting line where it says, we want all churches and interface social justice groups to adopt and comply with the UN declaration, the minimum standards outlined within and then it has three subpoints, and the third subpoint is say says we we need churches to engage in ongoing public dialogue around the UN Declaration and actions. Now, what does actions all entail? Um, because these the UN Declaration has to do with not only respecting the cultural rights of Indigenous peoples, um, you know being over against any prejudice and racism that are inflicted upon indigenous peoples by the state or any other organization within Canada. But it has to do with respecting indigenous people's right to free prior informed consent when it comes to development on their own territories. It has to do with land reparation. Like there's a lot of deep and profound uh, calls to action within the declaration itself. I think the TRC's call for churches to engage in action points out what we really struggle at within the churches is that we do a fairly decent job of the educational work within our communities. We do an okay job of publicly acknowledging where we need to go in these conversations. The, th the real challenge is that third thing is what are the, what are the practical implementation steps that we're going to do to actually right some of these wrongs that have happened that still persist and are we going to actually be present and be with suffering peoples in the struggles that they want so this is long-winded forgive me Liam but I would say like even going back to like 
over this last month, I've been rereading um, the foundational liberation uh, theology document uh, that came in Medellin in 1968, where they call the church, specifically the clergy, all those of us who are like on the reconciliation payroll, they say, your responsibility is to have a preferential option for the poor and suffering, which not only means that you have to center the way the Indigenous peoples see um, what we are being called to in, in these times, but you actually have to live with them and suffer with them in their struggles for a new world. And I, that is really the core challenge for our churches today. Like, by and large, a lot of us are middle class, pretty comfortable, and we can talk about Indigenous rights, but when it comes to a lot of the on-the-ground struggles, and I am situated right here in Winnipeg, we're 100 kilometers south, there is a native encampment against a fossil fuel pipeline, 200 kilometers north, there's an encampment uh, against a silica sands mine, which is used for fracking. Like it's 300 kilometers to the east is a community that's resisting um, or it's calling out for reparations around mercury poisoning in their community. It's all around us, let alone here right in my own city. Are we going to be present in the, the real struggles for change on the land? with with indigenous peoples that's the challenge yeah that's a great spot to end thank you so much that is a, a challenge that obviously resonates here in in australia as well and, and in many other contexts and so i hope uh plenty of my good uca folks will be checking out this interview and picking up the book unsettling the word biblical experiments in decolonization uh and you know, if you're from Australia and you're picking it up, you'll recognize a bunch of the names that show up in the, uh, in the contributors as well. Uh, Steve, thank you for putting together, helping to put together such an important book, such a helpful book, a good and honest challenge for people in the church today. Uh, anything else you want to plug or promote or draw people's attention to at this moment? Well, first off, I just want to say thanks so much for engaging the conversation. And uh, if folks pick it up, know that they're, um, it's a conversation piece. So they're entering a circle where they don't necessarily have to agree, but um, attend to the spirit and see where, uh, see where God leads you in that conversation. The plug that I'll give is for some cool uh, Australian friends uh, that I have, like Chris Button. I would say there's so many great resources and teachers, settler folks who are trying to be, uh, learn, you know, how to bring people along in these allied and accomplice relationships, I would say learn from them. Mm-hmm. So look up peers. Norm Habel would be a good one too. So, yeah. Great. Thank you for that. So go get the book, give it five stars on whatever online thing you use to help, uh, help get the word out there. And uh, yeah, Steve Hunricks, thank you for joining us on Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you so much, Liam.